This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so thankful for your word that, as the psalmist says, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that it is in your light that we see light, that you revealed yourself not through one person at one time, but you revealed your word through over 40 different authors of scripture over a period of over 2,000 years, and yet... Though they came from different cultures, different lands, different backgrounds, different education levels, they speak with a unified voice, with no contradiction, and they reveal to us, because you worked in and through them overseeing the writing, they speak to us of absolute truth. Now, Father, as we study your word today, may we be willing to submit our thinking, our lives to the principles of your word and the teaching of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our passage this morning is in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Now while you and I are both turning to that passage, I'll give you a little update. Received an email last night from Mark Musser. Mark's been planning for some time to go over to Ukraine so he's giving an update on the political situation. And if you haven't been following the news, uh, for the last three days, the Russians seem to have been massing troops on three different areas around the border of Ukraine. And the, um, the fear is that they are going to try to, at minimum, uh, t- uh, take over three of the eastern oblasts, that's our provinces, in, in Ukraine, which is in violation of of all international law. It's really an act of war. So far, a shot has not been fired, but there's uh, various Russian provocateurs that have been sent into Ukraine to try to stir up trouble and to create a situation where the Ukrainians would react with uh, fired shots or violence of some sort toward the Russians that would give Putin a pretext to send his military into Ukraine. Friday, I got an email from Eager. I hadn't heard from him in a couple of weeks, so I sent him an email to find out what was going on. And he was leaving Friday afternoon to go to Kharkov, which is about uh, 40 kilometers, about 25 miles or so from the Russian border in eastern Russia. And he was meeting uh, yesterday and today with a group of leaders in the uh, Ukrainian National Baptist Church. He had been asked to come and give them a proposal 
for some youth work uh, to do in Ukraine, and so this is the timing. He will not be returning home until tomorrow. Today in Crimea, right now it's about 6 or 7 o'clock, I think 6 o'clock in the evening, they're having a vote to determine whether they will separate from Ukraine and join Russia, or I think the other option is just to uh, separate from Ukraine, in, in essence, to become much more of an independent uh, province. And this is probably going to go overwhelmingly in the direction of, of separation from Ukraine and joining joining Russia. There are a lot of problems with that. They get electricity, water, sewage, all kinds of things come from Ukraine. So this is going to take a long time to work it out logistically. A lot of opportunities for uh, violence to occur, border clashes to occur. And I think that Putin is really looking for a pretext just to take over Ukraine because Russia historically has always viewed Ukraine as their buffer state with the West, and they do have some uh, missiles in Donetsk, I believe, and maybe a couple of other sites. And so they really want to reabsorb Ukraine into Mother Russia. We need to be in prayer for this, pray that God would restrain Putin, Pray for those that we work with. Those of us pastors who go over there every year have developed many close friendships. There are pastors over there, students. They're they're well prepared. They know the word, and the word is the only source of security. But but there are many Christians there. There have been a number of posts that I have seen of large groups, two, three, four thousand Christians gathering together in some of these towns to pray, uh, pray to pray for Ukraine. So. It's been the gospel has been very free there, and the opportunities to spread the gospel have been very free there to teach the word. And there are a number of fairly solid uh, schools from the U.S. that have extension campuses in in Ukraine that uh, have had quite a an impact on the church there. So we need to be continue to be in prayer for them. Uh, in prayer for Mark going over, Pastor Perkins, Mark Perkins, Front Range Bible Church is going over in a couple of weeks and some others, as I said earlier. So we need to really, truly be in, in prayer for this entire situation. It is, uh, it is quite a serious, I don't think we've seen anything quite this serious in, in since maybe Czechoslovakia, when uh, Hitler moved into Czechoslovakia and, um, and Poland back in the, in the 30s. This is real serious, so we really need to be in prayer for them. Okay, our passage is in Matthew chapter 5. Last time, I began with the first verse in this section I did, where you have these two metaphors describing the disciples. If you were not here, I'll give you a brief summary of this. You can go back and listen to the lesson. Jesus compares them to salt. He says, you are the salt of the earth. And the words I have in brackets on the slide are to indicate a clearer translation. You are the salt of the, for the land. This is an agricultural metaphor, as I pointed out, that salt in small amounts was used as basically a weed killer, which would help with the productivity of the soil. And it's used that way, as I cited from several sources, down through uh, the centuries until recent times. And even today, it, there are some salts that are included in a lot of uh, fertilizers function as, as weed killers. The focal point, then, of the metaphor, you are the salt of the earth, is not a being, functioning as a preservative 
for the culture of the world. The word earth here is not a synonym for world. In the parallel that we'll see in the next verse, you are the light of the world. The word cosmos that's translated world there usually refers to either the world system or the inhabitants of the planet. Whereas the word gay, the Greek word gay, translated earth here, usually refers to land or territory or a region. It's the same word that's used to translate Eretz from the Old Testament, specifically referring to Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, or the earth. God made the heavens and the earth. So this is not a synonym. There's no do- no documentation we can find in the Gospels, in any of the uses of the Gospels, where the noun gay refers to the inhabitants of the planet. So the strength of the argument is that this is a an agricultural metaphor, and that's strengthened from the last phrase that if it loses its the word there is foolishness, is this funny idiom, and it really has the idea if it's no longer useful, then because it's no longer useful, it's not seasoned. That's that's really not the focal point there. That's not a kitchen metaphor, it's an agricultural metaphor. Then it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. In the parallel passage in Luke, it talks about the fact that it's, it, it can't be thrown on the dunghill or in the field. Now, they would throw salt in the dunghill in order to help uh, prevent uh, the, the dung from, from fertilizing and from uh, going bad. So it would, it would be useful there. It would be useful in the field. So when Luke says it, it's neither good for the dunghill, it had a valuable use in the dunghill. Neither is it good for the field. It has a valuable use in the field. So it's good for nothing, and it would be thrown out. That shows us this is an agricultural metaphor, not a kitchen metaphor. It's not talking about seasoning food so that you frequently will hear uh, pastors explain this. We, we create a, a thirst for people, a thirst for the truth, or you season it so Christians should, should be seasoning for the world culture. Why in the world we would think that Christians need to, need to season the cosmic system? We're against the cosmic system. So the idea that fits best linguistically and culturally is the idea of uh, related to fertilization and making the believer productive. So what Jesus is saying here to the disciples, not you will become this way, but you because of who you are are to be productive. You're to bear fruit. That's backed up in other places. Now remember he's talking to them in the age of Israel during the life of the Messiah, and, the, and he's giving the principle, the, the gospel of the kingdom, to uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now the disciples are going to be going out, and this is to character, characterize their life as those who have repented and are preparing for the kingdom. Now this has an application to all who are waiting for the kingdom because the kingdom was rejected at the first advent, It's postponed until Jesus comes the second time. So we, like the disciples at that time and the Jews at that time, are in that interim period where we're still preparing spiritually for the future kingdom. That's the point of contact for application. 
So we have the same kind of application in terms of the light of the world. We're still waiting for the kingdom in that interim period. We are salt. We're to be productive, and we are to illuminate, be a source of light and revelation in the midst of darkness. The metaphor that we see here, I've I've described or uh, (coughs) diagrammed a metaphor, is when you take one element, compare it to another in an unstated way. You could say you're like salt. That's a stated comparison. That's called a simile. When you just say you are salt or you are light, that's an unstated comparison known as a metaphor. So it's comparing some quality of salt and some quality of light to a quality that that is part of the makeup of a genuine disciple. So the salt idea communicates that we are to be productive spiritually, and the light metaphor communicates something in relation to illumination. It's used probably two ways in the passage. It's clarified in the third verse. Verse 14 states, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your God in heaven. So this is to characterize every believer who is seeking to grow and mature as a disciple. It's not a condition for becoming saved, but it is to characterize the believer who is, as we'll see, working out his spiritual life, working out his salvation and growing to spiritual maturity. So the first verse, you are the light of the world. Two things are stated, two ideas, stating clearly that the disciples are not that you will become the light of the world, but that you are, present tense, the light of the world. The you is repeated in in the Greek. It's embedded within the second person plural of the verb, but the pronoun, the second person plural pronoun is stated, it's not always stated, it doesn't have to be stated. When it's stated in the Greek, it's for emphasis. He says, you guys, you disciples, you are the light of the world. Now, the context in which Jesus is stating this is in the context of the kingdom message that they are proclaiming in terms of that particular end stage of the age of Israel, the time when Jesus is on the earth proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So this is part of their function as who they are as Jewish believers in that dispensation. So we're not in that dispensation, but since the kingdom hasn't come, we, like they, are to characterize the same thing in preparation for the coming of the kingdom. The second idea that he states is that that of the principle to illustrate the point that he's made that a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. We're not to hide our light. He illustrates that further in the next verse. So to begin with, to understand this metaphor, we must first understand how it is used in the Scripture. And the, the metaphor is used many times. One of the ways in which it is used is of God and his character and his glory. Psalm 4, 6. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. 
The light of his countenance is a description of his character. It relates to his righteousness and his justice, which is an expression of his holiness, his distinctiveness. The word holy has the idea of being separate or distinct, so it really emphasizes his uniqueness. What's unique about God above any of his creatures is that God and God alone is inherently righteous and just. He is the source of all righteousness and justice. Psalm 142 states, regarding God, that he covers himself with light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. So the first part of that verse emphasizes his character. This is restated in the New Testament in 1 John 1, 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. He doesn't become light. He is light. This is one of the few statements in Scripture that we have that focuses on God's character and states it like this. We have God is holy, God is love, and God is light. So God is light. This emphasizes the purity of his character and the righteousness of his character. So this tells us that light has an ethical value. Light has an ethical value. It, it's not just illumination. That's one way in which we'll see that light is used. It's not just illumination of truth, but it has an ethical value. It, it is inherently righteous. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing that is because in verse uh, in verse 16, Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. See, there's a connection between letting our light shine and good works. This is divine good, that which is produced for us. We would apply this in the church age to those who are walking by the Spirit. This is different in their dispensation, but by application we would indicate that this is the fruit of the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, uh, divine good. So light has an ethical value as well. It's equivalent to holiness, righteousness, that God has no sin, evil, or dark darkness within him. So God the Father is stated to be light. Jesus is also stated to be light, in the, as in the passage I read this morning, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. The, at the incarnation, the presence of Jesus on the earth is illuminates the darkness of the cosmic system. Just by his, just by his presence, uh, we're also told in John one eight that John the Baptist was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of the light that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. So this is part of common grace. Jesus through the incarnation gives light. This is using light in terms of illumination. Gives light to every single human being so that all can be held accountable. He illuminates the world for truth. So when you answer the question, well, what about the person who never heard? The answer is the scripture says that by Jesus coming into the world, he gave light to all men, no matter where they were. It's part of common common grace and God's general revelation. Later in John 3, John says, the writer says, this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, that's Jesus, and men love darkness rather than light 
because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light. That's the normal modus operandi of every unbeliever. They recoil from the light. Why? Because what Paul says in Romans 1, 18 through 20, they're suppressing the truth in righteousness. They don't want the exposure. But if they're positive to that light that's given to them and they do want to know more, then eventually through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, they will respond to the truth. The Holy Spirit illuminates their thinking to truth. John 3.21, he who does the truth, see that's focusing on the person who is positive, they come to the light so that their deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. In John 8.12, as well as in the verses at the, I put in parentheses at the bottom, Jesus restated this truth uh, three more times. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Same phraseology, same words that he uses in Matthew 5 that when he says to the disciples you are the light of the world so same concept but our light is derivative of his light because he is the light of the world so what we see is the light of the world the second person of the trinity comes into the world John 1 John 3 and then he tells his disciples that because they are his disciples and have responded to the message of the kingdom and they will go into the kingdom, that to prepare for it, they must let their light shine. They are already positionally light in the Lord because they are regenerate. But now they need to make sure that their light shines before men. And that applies to us by by extension, that we are to let our light shine before men as those who are regenerate. So Jesus claimed to be the light of the world, and the one who follows him, that is the disciple, shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. That's the ethical challenge for every believer. Are we going to live like unbelievers and just say, well, that's okay, God will forgive my sin, I'll just use First John 1, 9 later, Or are we going to recognize that we're not to live like unbelievers, we're to live as light because that's who we are? Now, as we look at this metaphor in Scripture of light, uh, it goes back to creation. One of the first concepts we see in Genesis chapter 1 is that the world is shrouded in darkness, and the first creative command of God in Genesis 1-3 is, "...let there be light." And the light is then separated from the darkness. When there is light, the darkness is dispelled. And so we see that same imagery picked up in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts. This emphasizes the miraculous nature of the illumination of God the Holy Spirit of our souls so that we can understand the truth of the gospel. He commanded light to shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, part of the role of God the Holy Spirit is that he's going to convict the world of righteousness and sin. And that is what he does for every unbeliever. That's his focal point, is that he's going to be convicting the world of righteousness, of sin, and faith. And so 
he is going to be exposing that in the, the gospel presentation. When we look at any concept, we have to go back and see its roots in the Old Testament, especially, as I pointed out, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience. He's using imagery that they're familiar with coming out of their knowledge and understanding of the Old Testament, the Torah. And so he's speaking to them in the age of Israel, and he is communicating uh, principles related to those who want to be prepared for the arrival of the kingdom. So we need to go back and trace the use of light in its different emphases so that we understand what it is that Jesus is, is communicating. In the Old Testament, we have a great passage of, in 2 Samuel 23, 3, and 4. This is David's parting words before he died. What's significant about this is David is a type or an example of Christ. He for, in many aspects of his life, he foreshadows the messianic king. And in his closing words before he died, he states, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just. He's talking about, at this time, he is giving prophecy related to his descendant, the one who will fulfill the Davidic covenant, the one who will sit forever upon the throne of David. Uh, the one who rules over men must be just. So we see again that ethical value is, is part of this. He rules in the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. We studied that in Proverbs. And he, that is, the one who rules over men, this is a reference, a prophecy of the Messianic king, he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises. There's darkness. In the ancient world, they didn't have street lights. They didn't have all this illumination at night that we have today, so sometimes it's hard for us to put ourselves in those shoes. But when the sun went down, it was dark. You couldn't see anything, and the lamps that they had were very small. But yet a, a, a light from a lamp, when that's all the light you have, really illuminates the darkness. I don't know if any of you have gone to any of the major caverns that we have in, in this country. You can go to Wonder Cave, and you wonder why you went there. Over in uh, San Marcos, there's a few other caves. But one of the things that most of these places do, you got Longhorn Caverns outside of uh, Marble Falls. you got Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico. They usually take you down, and you're down in some really large room deep within the bowels of the earth, and they turn off all the lights. Now, you are in deep, deep darkness at that point. And then they'll just strike a match. And it's amazing how that light from that one little flame illuminates a huge, huge area that just a second ago was in pitch black darkness. I mean, you wave your hand in front of your face, you can't see anything, you can barely feel the wind from it. So that's what's being compared here is that the hope that is there because the sun comes up, it dispels the darkness, there's hope uh, looking forward to a new day and a new time. So the Messianic King is compared to the light of the morning, dispelling the darkness, presenting hope, looking forward to the next day, a morning without, cl uh, without clouds like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. All this is imagery of, of, of something that has been cleansed, something new. The dark has been dispelled. There's hope for a future. So that's linked with the ethics of the ruler who is just and the coming of the messianic king. 
So it emphasizes righteousness and justice. In Psalm 37, 6, we read, He, referring to God, shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday sun. Again, righteousness and justice are associated with the imagery of light. In Nehemiah 9.12, Nehemiah is referring back to the Exodus event and the years of wandering in the wilderness and points out that the pillar of fire guided and directed the Israelites through the wilderness so that uh, light is also a depiction of God's guidance uh, for us. So it is through his illumination that there is guidance. This is emphasized in numerous psalms. Uh, Psalm 1828, for you will light my lamp. The Lord will enlighten my darkness. He is the one who brings light into our own uh, spiritual life. In Psalm 36, 9, uh, he states, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light, that is in the light of divine revelation in his word, we see light. In other words, that's a great word for epistemology. Those of you who weren't here for the conference, it's a tremendous paper given by uh, Dr. Chris Cohn, who's the president of uh, Tyndale Seminary, on epistemology. Somebody said, went up to someone here and said, did I hear that right? This next class is about pistols. No, it's about knowledge. How do we know? Our knowledge is derivative. It is because God knows all things that we can know some things. So it's in his light, in his illumination, that we can come to know no truth. So the reality of God is the presupposition for knowing truth. Psalm 43.3, O oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me into your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Notice how light is related to truth in this verse. It's related to illumination. Psalm 43.3 I mean, excuse me, Psalm 112.4, Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. God is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. So light is not only illumination, but it's associated with the righteousness of God. Psalm 119.105, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This emphasizes illumination from God's word. Uh, this is also stated in Psalm 119.130, The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Now, in three passages in Isaiah, it's connected to the rule of the Messiah, the suffering servant. Isaiah 42, 6, I, the Lord, this is God the Father speaking, Yahweh, I have called you the suffering servant. This is the Messiah. I have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. So this is the role of Messiah is to be a light to the Gentiles and by extension, those who follow him. Uh, Isaiah 49.6 says this same thing, that he is going to be given as a light to the Gentiles. And in Isaiah 60, verse 3, which is a <clears throat> millennial passage, the Gentiles shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. So in Matthew 5.14, this statement, you are the light of the world, resonates with meaning related to the illumination of God, related to divine guidance, and related to the illumination that comes with the Messiah and with the kingdom. And then it's explained by the phrase, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, 
if you if you don't want your 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 home or your town to be noticed by anybody, then you establish it in the valley. Nobody will see it. It won't be prominent. It'll be hidden away. But if you want people to see it, to know it's there, if you want to make a statement in the world, then you build your city on a hill. This phrase did not originate with Ronald Reagan. It didn't originate with the Puritans. It's biblical. Jesus said it. A city set on a hill is one that is set there to be highly visible, to be prominent. Travelers who didn't reach their destination to your city uh, in time before the sunset and it became dark would see light as people lit the lights in the street and had the lights in their homes. This would be reflected in the Middle East. Many of the of the cities, many of the buildings are constructed with what they call Jerusalem stone. If you travel to the hill countries, I did the last couple of days, it's called Austin stone. It's pretty much the same thing. looks very similar, very popular for building today. And that whiteness of that stone, when you have lamps lit, would also help reflect that. And so if you're traveling at night and you haven't reached your destination, then you would see this city set on a hill, you would see the light, and it would beckon you, and it would uh, be a destination of hope and safety and give direction to uh, to travelers. And so this is the role of the disciple. He is a source of hope in a hopeless world. He is a source of illumination and truth in a world that is in darkness and lacks truth. This idea that it's not hidden but is to be exposed to all around is expanded in Matthew 5.15, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. If you t- and the word for basket here is that of that which, that which would be used to collect the grain in the fields. It was something that you'd have in most ha- homes. You light the light your 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 lamp and you put a bushel basket on top of it. It's going to dim the light. You won't you won't see anything. So you're not going to hide the fact that you are light, but you're going to put it on a lampstand. So it's got greater visibility, just like a city on a hill. It's going to be on a lampstand and give light to all who are in the house. This is part of how we bless the world through our relationship with God, blessing by association, because we are living in light of who we are as sons of light, the Scripture says. So then Jesus concludes in Matthew 5.16 by saying, Let your light so shine before men. Like what? Like the light that is set on a stand in the house that illuminates all in the household. That's how we're to illuminate all men, that they may see our good works. See, here it connects ethically to the production, the spiritual production in our lives. Now, we know that that production doesn't come from pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, by just an act of morality, but by walking by the Spirit. And when we walk by the Spirit, then the Spirit is the one who is working and producing in our lives. But And the result of that are good works that are intrinsically good. This is the Greek word agathos, meaning intrinsic good, not kalos, which just means usually means relative good. There are many good things in life that are not that don't accrue to spiritual significance. It's good to be ethical. It's good to be moral. It's good to be obedient to the law. But it's not the kind of good that's going to get you into heaven or mature your mature you spiritually. But these are those kind of good works that are related to spiritual growth. 
and that people need to see that we are ethically different. It has an impact on the culture around us, and as a result, the hope is that they will glorify God because of what we have done. Now, light is connected in numerous passages to the production of good, spiritual good. Uh, Job 30, 26, Job talks about, and all this verse is showing is this connection between light and good or evil. When I looked for good, evil came to me. When I waited for light, then came darkness. So we just see here a connection in the earliest book of the Bible, earliest book written, this connection, seeing that light is connected to uh, to that which is good or the absence of it for evil. Psalm 58, 8, again talking about Israel in the, in the kingdom, then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. Uh, righteousness there is connected to light. So this isn't a strange idea for Jesus' hearers. They understand that, that light relates to righteous behavior. Paul talks about this in Romans 13, 12. The night is far, far spent, the day is at hand. He's ta- using the day to refer to the church age. We have full, a complete canon of Scripture. And he says the conclusion and implication of that is let us cast off the works of darkness, quit living like an unbeliever, and let us put on the armor of light. That is further described in terms of ethical righteousness, biblical righteousness, divine righteousness that is worked out in our lives. So again, light is related to righteous behavior. In Ephesians 5, 8, and 9, we're told you were once darkness. Positionally, we were darkness when we were unbelievers, but now you are light in the Lord. You are light. You might not be coming light, but you are light. As a believer in Jesus Christ, at the instant that we're saved, we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his beloved son. So we are now light in the Lord, but we don't always walk that way. We don't always live as if we are light. So Paul gives us the mandate here that we are to walk as children of light. Well, what does that look like? The fruit of the Spirit, Ephesians 5, 9, is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So walking as a child of light, walking in the light, has an ethical dimension. We're to walk in righteousness, goodness, and truth. Now, as I wrap this up, in Philippians 2.12, Paul states that uh, to the Philippian believers, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, he's not talking about getting justified here. He's not talking about getting getting becoming a believer. They already are believers. That's what he said. He calls them my beloved. You've always obeyed. But now work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and do his good pleasure. We're familiar with this chart that there are three different ways in which we the Bible uses the word saved. When we believe in Jesus as Savior, we're justified, and the Bible says we're saved from the penalty of sin. Our eternal destiny is heaven, not the lake of fire. But after we're saved from the penalty of sin, we're a newborn baby and we need to grow. 
So we are saved from the power of sin. That's Romans chapter 6, 3 and following. The sin nature's tyrannical power before we were saved is broken at justification. It's still present, so we have to learn through doctrine by growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 3.18, or 2 Peter 3.18. We are to be saved and we are to grow uh, and mature, being saved from the power of sin, and then a glorification when we're absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, then we are saved from the presence of sin, no more sin nature at all. That's what Paul's talking about in Philippians 2. Then he goes on to say something. This is a little convicting for some people. Do all things, not some things, not most things, not when you feel like it, do all things without grumbling or disputing. No complaining, no arguing, have a great attitude about everything that you do, whether you like it or not. One of the greatest testimonies that I ever heard, given by a man who I who was highly respected, Dr. John Walford, story that many people are unaware of. When Dr. Walford was first working for the seminary, teaching in the seminary, they paid him something like $20 a month which wasn't a whole lot, but it's in the Depression. It's 1940. And there was a young man in his congregation that had uh, come, to be a, come, to, um, come to Dallas to, be, go, to, to go to seminary. But after his first year at seminary, he got called up. This was 1940. He got called up for active duty in preparation for World War II. He was stationed at Carswell Air Force Base there in Fort Worth, and during that time he was an elder in the Northwest Presbyterian Church, which was Dr. Walbert's church. And Dr. Walbert told me one time, he said, you know, no matter what I wanted done, no matter how distasteful it was to this man, what, whenever I asked him to do, he would do it ten times better than anybody else, even if he didn't like it. What a great testimony. That man later became pastor of Baraka Church. That was Bob Thiem when he was an elder at Northwest Presbyterian Church. Some of you don't know those kinds of stories. Philippians 2.14, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked... The word there is scolios, where we get our word for scoliosis, where somebody's spine is twisted the crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's what we are to do in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. I don't think that those terms could apply any more truly to our generation than other generations. We live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, yet we are to shine as lights in the midst of that that in the world. Same concept as that we find in Matthew 5.14. We are lights of the world. We're to be the light of the world. So, uh, And how do we do that? That's followed up by an instrumental participle in verse 16 by holding fast the word of life. How do you function as a light of the world? By holding on to the word of God, by learning it and by applying it in your life so that those who teach you, I'll, I'll make that an implication on the last verse. Paul says, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, because he was like their pastor. This is true for any pastor. So that when I am held accountable before the judgment seat of Christ, 
that I can rejoice because my congregation has stood forth as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. How? By holding on to the Word of God. That means you have to learn it before you can apply it. And that's why we focus on it here at West Houston Bible Church, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity we've had to focus upon your word, to be reminded that we are light, that we are not becoming light, that if we have trusted in Christ as Savior, we've been adopted into your royal family, and we are light. We are, we are the light of the world, and therefore we should not let our light be hidden, but we should let it shine forth, but not because we're bragging about it, not because we're telling other people about it, but because they just witness it in our day-to-day life. Now, Father, we pray for anyone here who may not have that hope of eternal life, may not be sure of it, that they might have certainty now by understanding the gospel that Jesus Christ died for you. He died for everyone. He paid the penalty for sin, but the issue is trusting in him. So the scripture says simply, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. Father, we pray that we will each be challenged to live as in light of the person that we are as light. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.